a lot of memories as we look at those names or those faces and hear those names called of people that we love dearly and uh, will miss severely. But uh, what great hope we have, um, hope in a resurrection, um, that uh, what we call death here is actually just a portal, a portal to eternity, and so we can look with anticipation uh, to a great reunion. And so that brings us really to our message today, uh, which is a message that's been entitled, A Resurrection Question. Because as much as we have hope and we have some certainty, it doesn't mean it doesn't come with questions of what it's like to be on this side and to imagine what's happening on the other side. Well, in the week leading up to his arrest, Jesus was attracting a lot of attention. On the Sunday before his arrest, you'll recall, he rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on the back of a donkey, um, and he's parading in. The people are gathering uh, to see him. They believe this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. They wave palm branches. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Our great um, hope is finally in front of us. Uh, Not only that, just uh, days really before Uh, This moment, as Jesus is parading into Jerusalem, he had been there with uh, Mary and Martha standing outside the grave of Lazarus, and it's there that he raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine that is really stirring up a lot of attention. A lot of people are being drawn to Jesus. They think this is it. This is the one we've been waiting for. And that might have been good news for some, but it was unwelcome news to the Jewish religious elites. They felt the need to bring a halt to Jesus' ministry. They wanted to discredit him as a spiritual leader. So Mark's gospel tells us that they came up with some sort of plan where they went to Jesus publicly, these elites, and they began to ask questions in order to trap the teacher, in order to stump the rabbi. They wanted to totally dismantle what he had going. And so they take advantage of this moment. See, Jesus did not have the right credentials. He didn't go to the right schools. He didn't come through the right channels. He was attempting this rabbinical upstart, and it was really causing a problem for the spiritual elites. See, these were the guys with the right diplomas. They had the official titles. They had framed um, honors hanging above their mantle. They were the officers in all the different clubs, and this Jesus movement was really ruining the life that they had forged, the the plans that they had. They wanted him gone. So first, Mark tells us, the chief priests, scribes, and elders come to Jesus with a question about his authority. And then the Pharisees and Herodians came to him with a question about paying taxes. Their goal, of course, is to trap him, to stump him, to create a problem. But in both situations, Jesus turns the tables back on them, and they walk away. Totally discredited from what they were attempting to do. Next, Mark tells us, the Sadducees came. Now, the Sadducees, there's there's a lot of information about the Sadducees that has been lost to history. Um, Most of what we know about the Sadducees is recorded for us by their opponents. So people who did not um, necessarily see them in the best light. Nevertheless, we can kind of piece together who they were. They were um, more than likely the Jewish aristocrats. These were the members of the high priestly families, the leading families in Jerusalem. Socially influential, they were wealthy, they had status. Some of them were members of the Sanhedrin, Acts tells us that. They were politically liberal, they cooperated with the Romans. 
but they were theologically conservative. In fact, they would consider themselves more conservative than even the Pharisees because they did not accept a lot of the teachings that the Pharisees brought, uh, teachings uh, that were based on traditions or maybe, maybe later um, uh, developments within the Jewish faith. They believed there was only one authority, and it was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they trusted. And so it led to a really nuanced theological belief uh, within the Jewish system. They actually rejected most supernatural things. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. But most importantly, they rejected resurrection from the dead. They did not believe in an afterlife. That's why when we were in kids in, Sunday, kids in Sunday school, we were told the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they were sad, you see. And so that's how we remembered it all these years. Um, so no surprise here. The Sadducees, who were sad, you see, they come to Jesus. And they come from an angle of dealing with this subject of the resurrection of the dead. This is a subject matter they were used to. They had been engaged in this debate over and over and over again. So they probably brought their best ammo in the question that they posed to Jesus because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to stump the rabbi. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark's gospel. And we're going to be in chapter 12 this morning, looking at verses 18 through 27. So Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here together, to worship you freely, to read your word, to be challenged and convicted by it, to be encouraged and strengthened with it. And so, Father, we pray that in this moment you would have your way with your people. Would you encourage and strengthen and establish the saints? Would you call home the prodigal? Would you save the sinner today? Father, I pray that I would be useful in your hands as you meet with your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the text, Jesus responds to a question from his detractors who were challenging the legitimacy of the resurrection by attempting to point out this logical fallacy, a logical fallacy that would make people walk away and say, so there's no resurrection. Now, there's a lot to learn from this text, 
But the point that we can walk away with this morning as believers in Jesus is one of certainty in the resurrection from the dead, which will ultimately be fullness of life in the presence of King Jesus forever and ever. No matter what happens, no matter how the future unfolds for us, for the believer in Jesus, we can be certain that in the end, it's going to be all good. That's what we can be certain of today. The Sadducees begin with a good question. Now, it may have been a ploy, but I contend that the question they ask is actually a good question. It might be a question that we might want to ask. There's a shroud uh, over the afterlife. It leaves us all with questions. Now, they're dishonest here. Nevertheless, the Sadducees' question is a good question. So let's begin there in verses 18 through uh, 23. The Sadducees describe a scenario. They say there's a guy... His brother dies, he leaves behind a wife. The Latin root word, uh, levir, means brother-in-law. And so that's the root word for what we find in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the law um, of the uh, levirate marriage. Deuteronomy 25 spells out what happens if a woman um, within the culture, a woman within uh, the Jewish um, uh, tribe, if they were to... um, Their husband was to die and they were to be left with no heir. What are they to do? How do they thrive? How do they survive? Because the culture is set up in a certain way and she's vulnerable. So what are they to do? Well, as is described here, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So this idea of Leviric marriage is described in the book of Deuteronomy. It's also illustrated even earlier in the scripture. Uh, Perhaps you'll remember Judah. Judah had a son who married Tamar. The son died. And so he gave Tamar, Judah did, gave Tamar to his other son. He died. And then Judah got a little hesitant to give her to the third son. And we understand why. And it it spirals out of control there. It's a real interesting text. So there was no law because this is before Moses, but he still demonstrated this idea of Leviathan marriage. If you've read the book of Ruth, it's rooted in this idea. uh, Because Ruth was left without an heir. Her husband died. Naomi is left without an heir because all of her sons died. And so Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He comes along, and he really follows in this idea of Leviathan marriage in taking Ruth as his wife. Everyone present where Jesus is at this moment was familiar with Leviathan marriage. So the Sadducees use this law to develop this what-if question for Jesus. And their desire is really to make Jesus look foolish because they want to make people turn away from him. They also want to really challenge this idea of resurrection, to make it look as ridiculous as they thought it was. And so their question is, the woman's husband dies, she has no heir, so the husband's brother marries her, he dies, no heir. This happens seven times. Now, if we would have been there, we would have been like, we need to ask some questions. What's happening with this woman? You know, but that's not their point here. They're not trying to figure that out. They're trying to, they're trying to focus on another issue, so they don't ask that question. They say... The woman marries all seven brothers, all seven brothers die, then she dies. And in verse 23, we get to the crux of the matter. In the resurrection, it says, when they rise again, which one's, uh, which one's uh, wife will she be? Who will she belong to, right? Now, I don't uh, want you to miss here. The Sadducees are snickering as they open up here. They're saying, in the resurrection, when they all rise, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Because they believe that's nonsense. That's not going to happen, but... Okay, let's just say it happened. So how are you going to handle this one, Jesus? You know, they, they hijack this idea, and they describe an absurd situation. She's been married to seven brothers. Now in the resurrection, who will she be married to? Now, I imagine this is a scenario that had been hotly debated 
by the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law because that's what they sat around to do. They come up with these scenarios and then they developed really traditional thinking around it. So I'm sure they were like, well, it would probably be the first husband because the rest of them married um, basically to make up for him, right? Some might say, well, no, it'd be the last one because that's the one who she had the last covenant relationship with. Or perhaps they would say she gets to choose. You know, it'd be like a little bachelor thing or whatever and uh, she gets to choose there. Who knows? Either way, challenging situation And you can imagine, all of a sudden, resurrection sounds like chaos. A bunch of people fighting over a bride saying, well, this one's mine, that one's mine, whatever. Most scholars point out this is an absurd question, but I think if we're honest, we have to admit there's actually a legitimately good question here. At the root of the question is, how does life after death work with regards to our earthly relationships? Does life just kind of continue on the same trajectory we're on, just remove the bad stuff, and we just keep heading the way we're going. You know, kind of existence 2.0, just a little bit of an upgrade. The Sadducees may have wanted to trap Jesus, but I think that what we find in this text is a good example of what it looks like to ask Jesus questions regarding the great hereafter. And I want to be clear as we start here. Christians take a very strong position regarding resurrection from the dead. It is not a debated issue. It is certain. But there is a mystery about the details of death, about dying, and about the afterlife. The Bible tells us a lot, but it does not tell us everything. So we have some questions. What we know is the Sadducees believed in annihilation. According to Josephus, their doctrine is that souls die with bodies. So after you die here, that's all she wrote. You know, it's, it's all over with. There's nothing more to this. We just pretend like there's something more. They believed in annihilation. Now, I don't know of any Sadducees around today, but this philosophy has not gone away. It's been taken up, particularly by the secular atheists. They believe this is all there is to existence. Uh, people who follow in uh, the line of Nietzsche and Marx and of Sigmund Freud. In fact, they all argued that to think about the resurrection is not just a waste of time. It really is a distraction. It pulls you away from what really matters, the real here and now. But I would say there's a lot of evidence out there to show us that the thing that really helps us deal honestly and truly and rightly with what's right in front of us is when we have a good understanding of resurrection. Because we recognize people matter. Souls matter. What is good and what is right really matters. So, what's keeping me from believing in annihilation? I would say, first of all, the Scripture's Do not stutter here. The scriptures are very clear about the resurrection from the dead. It speaks it over and over and over again. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 49, verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Sheol is emblematic of death, so God will redeem those who have died. They will be with him. That's what happens at death. That's what the psalmist says. Job, now, which predates Psalm. In fact, it's written prior to Moses' existence, we believe. Job 19, verse 25, poetically, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. So, Job believes even though he dies, he will be alive enough to really see Jesus or see the Redeemer, he says, with his own eyes. Even the prophet Daniel, 
speaks about resurrection from the dead. And he speaks clearly that not only will those who die and who are redeemed be resurrected, but all will be resurrected. Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the scriptures clearly articulate resurrection from the dead is a certain event. But we cannot prove it with science. And so we struggle with that, right? Our belief in the resurrection is actually rooted in faith. Something we cannot see, but we believe with our hearts, with our minds. Now we do have evidence, though, that gives, our hope, uh, gives us hope. And the evidence is the first fruits for us. Jesus' own resurrection. In fact, his resurrection from the dead is actually our only hope as we face eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So the Sadducees, they come and they ask about marriage in the afterlife, but in the afterlife. But what we should draw from this text is overwhelming confidence. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but the people of God do. There is more to life than what we see. We have to deal with the grief that comes with the absence of our loved ones on earth, but the Christian looks at death as a doorway. The Christian looks at death as an entry point into what is the glorious hereafter. Sadducees bring a good question. No surprise, Jesus brings a great answer. As he had done in previous encounters with detractors, he responds to their question with questions, right? It's kind of a frustrating moment, a frustrating situation when somebody does that. You ask the question and they say, well, what about you? And you're like, this is ridiculous, just answer my question. That's how Jesus operates. They pose a question. Jesus poses a question right back to them. And here in this text, he asks two questions. Verse 24, he responds to them by saying, aren't you mistaken? Because you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand God's word. You don't understand the book of the law. Not only that, you don't understand the power of God. So that's why you're mistaken, right? Verse 26, he asks another question. He says, have you even read what God says to Moses from the burning bush that's captured within the books of Moses? Now, these Sadducees were true religious elites. They were experts of sorts when it came particularly to the books of Moses. And they were convinced if anybody knows these books or this text, it's us. But Jesus says, your problem is you don't know what you claim to know. You don't know the real power of God. You don't know the scriptures. And you have no authority to speak for God. They speak of resurrection as a joke. But not Jesus. This is the same Jesus who stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and claimed, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And so when he comes to respond to them, he says with certainty, not as a joke, not tongue-in-cheek. He says, for when they rise from the dead. In other words, they will rise from the dead. We will rise from the dead. And if we do all rise from the dead, then the question the Sadducees ask is a serious one, right? For anyone who has been widowed and then remarried, or someone who has married a widow or a widower, or somebody who has been divorced and remarried, then all of a sudden resurrection can get a little dicey. Because if we're all alive, then who goes with who? 
You know, how are we supposed to figure this whole thing out? Well, Jesus solves it in one fell swoop. He says, there will be no marriage and resurrection. And everybody's like, I'm glad you took care of that. (laughs) And then we think, hold up a second. If that's true, then what about this relationship I have? Because I would actually like to be reunited with them in eternity, right? I would put Mark chapter 12, verse 25 into what I categorize as the difficult sayings of Jesus. It solves the problem for the characters of the Sadducees story. But it's a real conundrum for those who want to be reunited with their spouse in resurrection. I know many of you today are thinking about loved ones who are already there. And you are thinking about being reunited. In fact, you are hoping for that day. You are longing for that day when you can be with them. And so you think, Wes, you opened the book to this verse. We'd like a little bit of an encouragement here, a little bit of an assurance here. Does Jesus mean I will not be married to my deceased spouse? Or does it mean I just won't get married again? Or will my deceased loved one even remember me? Or will we hang out over there? And how can it be a perfect heaven if I have broken relationships? Jesus' response to the Sadducees is, well, you'll be like angels in heaven. And I would say it's pretty important for you to underline that word like there. He is not saying you will be angels. It's a simile. It's a comparison. You will be like angels. Angels are distinct beings. They are created by God for specific purpose. They are not people who then graduated to heaven and then earned wings. That's not how it works. Angels are angels. People are people. It's very different. So the people who have died here and have gone to be with God, they are still people there. The angels are not sons of Adam. So you will not become an angel, but you will be like the angel. And this is a little jab at the Sadducees. Because they come asking a question about resurrection, which they don't even really believe in. And Jesus responds to them with a response about angels, which they also don't believe in. But he says here, he's making a point. He's saying, in the resurrection, we will be like angels because there will be no marriage. There will be no procreation in heaven. That's because there will be no more death. There will be no need to populate heaven. Marriage And procreation is an earthly matter. It's a temporary thing. So in that way, we will be like angels. The chaos described by the Sadducees is non-existent, according to Jesus, because marriage is not going to be a thing in the resurrection. Then Jesus responds with this second question. He says, have you even read about what God says to Moses there in that text about the burning bush? And he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God speaks from the burning bush and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And his point is, God is not the God of the dead. He is not claiming these corpses as what he is Lord over. He is speaking in the present tense. He says, I am the God of your fathers. Not I was or they were, he speaks of them in a present tense, as if they are still alive, because they are. Even though they had died years before Moses shows up on the picture, he says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. They are still alive. I am still in fellowship with them in the resurrected life. Jesus knew they were not just trying to confuse him. They actually were trying to attempt to challenge the doctrine of resurrection from the dead. But to deny the resurrection is to deny God's word. Is God mistaken? 
Has he gotten it wrong? Jesus says to the Sadducees, you are mistaken. I want to just take a little detour here and say that it is very important that we learn from Jesus here that we must tell people when they are wrong. Jesus said it to their faces. This is not a slam. It's not a takedown. Truth be told, it's an act of love. To be corrected by the Lord is to be loved by him. It's not an act of love when we allow someone to believe a lie or to continue to live in error. That is not an act of love. To love someone is to care for them enough to point out what is true and how they are living in contradiction to the truth, in conflict with the truth. See, we have allowed our understanding of love in this culture to be reduced to nothing more than just affirmation. You know, where I, you know, if I cannot and do not affirm who you are or what you say or what you believe, then it must be that I don't love you. But that's crazy. I can love you and tell you that you are mistaken at the same time. We used to call that parenting, to love your child by correcting them. And I would say to parents today, perhaps the cruelest thing that you can do to your child is to insulate them from correction, to allow them to believe that love is merely just affirmation. So if somebody thinks that you're wrong or you're an error, they must not love you. That would be a travesty. Your child needs correction. They need correction from you. They need correction from teachers and administrators. They need correction from leaders in the church, and they need correction from other authorities. We need to teach people how to receive correction as an act of love. And let me say to you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, We need relationships that desire and that pursue accountability, where we tell each other, beloved, you're in the wrong here. Beloved, you are headed towards a dangerous end here. We must speak the truth, and we can speak it in love. Jesus speaks the truth here. He says, you're mistaken. And he is love, so we know he says it with love. His claim is threefold. There will be a resurrection. There will be no marriage for believers. And we will be like angels. So what we learn here is the afterlife is not simply a form of resuscitation. It's not all of a sudden we close our eyes here and then we open it there and just continue on as we are with the bad stuff pulled out, right? Resurrection is not just resuscitation. It is complete transformation. When we die and we enter into the hereafter, it's not simply that we continue as we are. What we experience in the resurrected life is complete, transformed existence. It's something we cannot comprehend. It's something we cannot grasp this side of eternity. In fact, I think that that's why it feels like details are left out of the book. Because it's so hard to comprehend it, we think, man, they must have just left the details out. But the reality is we have no point of reference. We don't have a point of reference to turn to, so we wouldn't understand anyways. It's a challenge for us. One commentator says, it's like trying to describe somebody who has only lived and only known what life is like in a frozen tundra, you know, where there is, um, you know, just flat, uh, treeless, uh, soil is frozen. Maybe they experience 50 degrees for a couple of days in the summer. It's, It's hard to explain to them what a tropical paradise would be like, Columbia, South Carolina. They can't relate to it, right? It's hard to describe. You know, being on the coast, balmy day. 
sitting on the sand, wanting to walk into the ocean and be refreshed. That would sound horrific to them. So it's just hard to explain. They can't imagine palm trees, palmetto trees. They can't imagine that. And so how would you describe it to them? Probably by telling them what's not there. There's no polar bears. Oh, okay. No icebergs. Hmm, you know, no permafrost. That's a little bit probably what it's like, how the scriptures describe heaven to us. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. Jesus says there will be no marriage. And that's hard to imagine. It makes us wonder, will we know each other then? And if I know each other, then how will it be not odd to be around each other, but not in the same kind of relationship? You know, will we want to spend time together? Will we remember these shared experiences we have? There's a lot of mystery here. A lot of mystery here. But I believe the scriptures are actually clearer than we think they are. I'm confident we will know one another. We will recognize one another. We will share the memories of what we experienced on earth. When David's son dies, he said he would not come back to me. He says, but I will go to him. So we have this picture in the scriptures of a father who says, I will experience reunion with my deceased son. Paul said to the church that we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And he describes how God will bring with him those who have died in him. And he's basically comforting us to say, this is not the end. There will be a day when he will bring us all back together. So we will know each other in heaven. We will be with those we care for. But here's the deal. Heaven is not going to be a place that demands a family unit. Heaven does not need the structure of marriage to create the society that we need. Because Jesus provides all of that. Nobody will have parental needs. Nobody will need a caregiver. But that does not mean that we will be relationshipless, right? It just means our relationships are going to be transformed. Donnelly writes, every good thing will be better in heaven. There's no reason to think we will know less in heaven than we know in earth. Rather, I believe we will know one another more intimately. We will love one another more intensely. We will delight in one another more fully. The resurrected life will be different from life on earth. It's not just going to be a continuation. It's not just stepping into another realm with the same exact experiences. Just no bad things, right? But that doesn't mean that the good things go away either. The good things get better. And I know some of this is a little bit of conjecture because it's not spelled out. But the scriptures do tell us a lot about heaven. Heaven is a place that Jesus is preparing for us. And we could not even comprehend if we tried to what it's going to be like. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And which have not entered in the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven is not going to be lacking in any way. Revelation 21 says that our heavenly home will be a glorious city. And it will be aglow with the glory of God. His throne will be right in the center. There will be no night because his glory will consistently and constantly emanate from the throne. The text also says that it will be a place of holiness. Ephesians 1.10 says heaven will be a place of unity. 1 Corinthians tells us it will be perfect. There will be no disappointment there. Nobody will be deprived of what's needed to experience joy. Instead, everything that's brought joy while you're here on earth will likely seem very shallow and kind of a small thing in comparison. Heaven is a perfect place that God has planned for his family. And the scriptures make it clear You'll be recognizable in heaven. 
even in your glorious state. God will transform you by his power, but we'll still know each other. We'll get a new body. It will be glorious. It will be eternal. It will be without pain. You will be perfect in form, perfect internally. You will love God perfectly, and you will love others perfectly. You will have perfect knowledge. There will be no more death. There will be no hunger. There will be no thirst. There will be no sin. We will perfectly obey God and do so with undiminished joy and desire forever and ever. You'll never get tired of it. You'll never get bored from it. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never be discouraged. Heaven is to be a place that is joy upon joy upon joy upon joy. We have a lot of reasons to look forward to life and the resurrection. Our loved ones who know or knew Jesus will be there. I have every reason to believe that I will see you there and we will know each other and we will say, man, Wes got it wrong on that, but that was right, you know? I believe that. I realize that some of you may have difficult relationships with parents, with children, with spouses, and you think, I I might prefer escape over reunion. All I can tell you is that everything will be transformed by this glorious power that we experience in heaven, and you will experience, your, your joy will not experience any lacking thing, lack of any sort of relational joy. It will be wonderful. But most of all, the promise of resurrection is a promise to be with Jesus. We will see him. We will know him more fully, and we will be like him. The Sadducees asked Jesus a good question. They were merely trying to stump Jesus. Jesus gave a great answer. The best question we could ask about heaven is not what will it be like, but it is, will I be there? Will you be there? The only hope of eternal life that we can have, the only confidence that we can have that we'll be there, is through relationship with Jesus. Do you believe Jesus? Have you received him by faith? There is life after death. Only those who are in Christ will be certain that they will be there before him and that they will experience the fullness of life in his presence. Are you ready to meet your maker? Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we don't have to walk away confused, frustrated, or disappointed. We can walk away with hope because we know that you have prepared a place for those you love and you have given us confidence to know we will be there if we have saving faith in you. Father, we pray for the many who need to get that right today. May they say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come to a time of decision. Some of you may need to make a commitment. You may need to say, I do need to get right with the Lord. Well, today's the day. Some of you, it may be some other decision. So we're gonna have a time of invitation. Our choir's gonna sing, and either from where you are, if you need to come forward, you can make that decision now. So let me invite you to stand. Choir's gonna sing, you pray. If you need to come forward, you do so now.
Well, as you've heard the message today, perhaps God is speaking to your heart. Let me encourage you to go to your phone and call the number on your screen and we have some wonderful people who would love to pray with, talk with you about the needs in your life. So simply go to your phone and call the number on your screen. And once again, we thank you so much for worshiping with us today.